IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we respond to letters from you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hyden and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, he drove up to Hillside Manor sometime after 2 a.m. and talked a little while about the year. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? So I guess there's a little spoiler alert. I watched The Last Waltz for the first time, but I guess I didn't watch it hard enough because I assume you were like offering me like a show of solidarity by quoting like up on Cripple Creek or something like that. No, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm quoting along December. Yeah, I did not know that. Uh, I, I don't. I... Oh my God. Because <laughs> we're posting this episode on December 1st. So it is a long December season. Yes. I thought for sure you would recognize a long December quote. And what What's going on here? You thought that was a band quote? Yeah. I drove off to. I'm not gonna like try to sing like Levon Helm. Uh, look at me talking like a, a fucking band expert. But that's like I, I think that's like one of the lesser lyrics, right? I mean, it's one of the best lyrics I think in the it's, song. It's it, it's toward the end. Oh, it's there like, you uh, go. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. come on. I feel like a long December. That is like, uh, that's canon. I, I I feel like you would know that. I'm a little disappointed here. I I. I I'm I'm beside myself. Yeah, uh, quite honestly, uh, I, I fucked I I fucked that up big time. Like I mean, I've heard Long December. I like that song, but I guess I'm just not paying. Adam Duritz, if you're listening to this podcast, and like I think there's a non-zero chance of that. Uh, I mean, if you quoted like Angels of the Silences, I definitely would have got that. <laughs> oh my god! Well, anyway, yeah. we're in December. It's a long December. We're in the lull. Of, uh, like, before year-endless season. I mean, we've had some year-endless come out this week, but I feel like next week is going to be when things really start to happen. I know I'm posting my year-endless next week. We're going to be doing our Best Albums of 2023 episode next Friday, so look out for that. Um, I have to say, like, this year, I find myself being more excited about making my own list than I have in a while. You know, I'm going to quote one of my favorite SNL sketches, Steve Martin. I feel young again. I feel 38. <laughs> That's how I feel right now. I feel like a kid of 38 making my list. And I think it's partly because it's been a really good music year, I think. Like, revisiting my favorite albums, putting my list together, I feel like, wow, there's like a lot of good albums here. I don't know if there's like a lot of masterpieces this year. Like, I'm not seeing a lot of out-and-out home runs on my list, but it's like a ton of doubles and triples. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that, like those years where you don't have two or three dominant albums, because I don't think there are two or three dominant albums this year, just like albums that are going to be at the top of every list. Maybe you think I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that... I think you're going to see a lot of different albums at the top of lists. And I kind of like those years more. It just seems like there's like a lot of like really good records that could end up on a variety of different lists. It just makes things more interesting. I mean, do you think? Do you just do you agree with that, or do you do you think do you see dominant players out there that are just going to be everywhere? Well, I'm going to make up for my uh, long December flub by saying in a year that's like largely triples and doubles, not a lot of home runs. It's like a Paul Molitor type season. 
did that work? <laughs> or you could have said Robin Yelp. Yeah. Robin Yelp might have been good yeah. too, but you know, I appreciate it. I appreciate the uh, Wisconsin sports references. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there are going to be albums that you see, um, you know, in a weird way, I, I think that like, you know, Olivia Rodrigo and Boy Genius are going to be like, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of publication you run. That's that's going to be on there, but they might be like number eight or ten. I mean, like Rolling Stone's definitely going to have one of them at number one. That's for sure. But um, I think otherwise, there isn't anything that's really dominated the discussion. And I don't know if that's been, you know, I don't know if there's really been anything like that since like, you know, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Um or, you know, maybe the year I think, before. well, like, Beyonce last oh, year, I God, think, was that's that so kind sad. of record. I forgot already. <laughs> like, like, I don't think that there's, like, a Beyonce Renaissance-type no. record this year. Or, like, when there was, when Kanye was in his prime, you felt like when he dropped My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, like, that was just automatically at the top of mm-hmm. everyone's list. I don't, like, you're right. Yeah, Boy Genius and Olivia Rodrigo, they're going to be in the mix. But I don't think that either one of those are like the de facto number one for most lists. They're going to be in the top 10, but I I feel like you're going to see a lot of different number ones. I feel like, you know, low key, like there's this uh, kind of uh, ambient buzz that like that boy genius and Olivia Rodrigo won the year, but the albums are maybe not quite as good as they are popular. But yeah, I think we're going to see like, uh, you know, endless number of permutations of like the same albums. You know, like Wednesday is going to be number one at a bunch, and then you're going to have maybe Caroline Polachek at number one. But like on the ones where Caroline Polachek is number one, Wednesday is going to be like number four, and vice versa. So uh, I think I'm 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 ready for some dark horses. But I mean, gosh, I haven't spent like any time formulating my year end list largely because I don't think there is something that my year is centered around you know it, it, there's been like two month chunks where something was like I, I I guess that's number one but I don't know maybe it's just like my uh you know increasing obsolescence that I don't feel like you know I have to shape my year to the narrative it's kind of sad <laughs> I think I think in terms of like the broader list making community yeah if we're talking about dark horses and it's weird talking about them as dark horses because they're both very well established as critical favorites, but they aren't necessarily in that Olivia Rodrigo boy genius conversation. But I'm curious to see, I think Lana Del Rey and Mitski could do really well and maybe sneak into some of those top spots. The Lana Del Rey record in particular, I feel like um, people really love that album. Like people have talked about that being, the second coming of Norman fucking Rockwell, which I don't necessarily agree with. I don't like it as much as that album, but I, uh, I understand where they're coming from. It is very much musically of a piece with that album. And A and W is definitely one of my favorite singles of the Same. year. Like that singles is great. I think the album on the whole, I think drags a little bit in places, but the highlights are, are really high. So I, I think that could do well. And again, calling her a dark horse is not really accurate. But, you know, in terms of the conversation of, like, who owned the year, I think she could sneak in there. And, and Mitski as well. I mean, Mitski's going to be high up for me, uh, personally, uh, which we'll talk about more next week. Um, you know, a complaint you often hear this time of year is the standard, why are you releasing lists in late November, early December? You know, this is a this is wrong. You should wait until January to put out your lists. And uh, you know, I always feel like 
Hyman Roth in The Godfather Part Two, like when people bring this up, it's like this is the business we've chosen. <laughs> you know, this is you know, you, we have to put out lists now because that's when everyone else is putting out their lists, and if you wait too long, your list becomes irrelevant. I mean, that's just the way it is. But it is interesting this year because there is an argument in previous years where a lot of times there is like that one list wrecker album that comes out after lists have come out or as they're coming out where people want to do that fraudulent thing where they put it on the next year's list. Like we've talked about SZA being that album this year Mm -hmm. where people are going to put that on their 2023 list, even though that came out in December. I don't know how you feel about that. I think that's totally fraudulent. I think you have to either put your list out later or just accept that the calendar is the calendar. You can't say my publishing <laughs> schedule takes precedence over the calendar where I'm going to pretend that a 22 that a 2022 album is out in 2023. Um do you feel that way or do you think that's acceptable? Like if you see SZA on list, do you, are you going to accept that as a legitimate placement on a list? I mean, I get I guess. I mean, like I, I we usually Especially with like decade album lists, um, you know, we there's sometimes like year of impact as opposed to year of release. And we've had a couple of albums that have really confounded things. We had, um, you know, like uh, Beyonce self titled in 2013, D'Angelo in 2015, or was that 2014? Something along, I think it was 14. Okay, yeah, so those come out in Black December. Messiah, yeah, yeah, that one. And, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Here, that's here's 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 a good question. Um, do you know, do you want to know like 1979, a year like with no internet, like no, everything is long lead. London Calling came out on December 14th. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I did that. Oh, it was released in the United States in January. So that's, that's how they, that's how they get you. Okay. Because that album (laughs) was named by Rolling Stone as the best album of the eighties. Yes. Which is an even more egregious example of what we're talking about. I guess if it came out in the U.S. in January of 80, then you can call that acceptable. I I, I didn't know that. I didn't... So, I, okay. So that's okay, I guess. Because <laughs> um, that seems cheap otherwise. But, you know, the thing about this year... You know, because, again, because, like, in previous years, and you mentioned some records, some, like, the list wrecker records that came out uh, in... December or late November in previous years, you know, a lot of years there is like a big ticket rap record that comes out at the end of the year or a big ticket pop record. I mean, that's a pretty standard thing. Um, I mentioned my beautiful, twi- my beautiful dark twisted fantasy earlier. I think that came out like right around Thanksgiving. That was absolutely right around. I have very vivid memories. That was November 22nd. Yeah. And it's like, I just picture like arcade fire and vampire weekend thinking like rubbing their hands together like oh we put out the suburbs <laughs> we put out contra man we're topping these lists and then kanye comes along drops this self-consciously designed masterpiece <laughs> on critics and they have to tear up their list and he goes to the top of almost everybody's list that twin year Twin shadow um, feeling ultra salty you know was twin shadow in the mix uh, well not in, the in mi- not, not in the mix but i mean that that was the year that uh forget came out fucking awesome record I also, I mean, maybe in Twin Shadows' mind, yeah. he thought I'm going to be at the top of the <laughs> list, that but does, I don't think that, that does track with what I know about Twin Shadow. 
Because uh, LCD Sound System, they put out yeah. their, quote, last record that year. Uh, this is happening. Right. That was another contender uh, for year-end list. The um, monitor. What a, fu- what, a, what a fucking year. <laughs> That's a great year. Yeah. Um, but, you know, looking at the release calendar this year, I mean, it really is, like, pretty empty. Like, we've ha- gotten most of the albums. Like, we're not missing much in December. This week, uh, out today, is the new Peter Gabriel album, which I'm going to be talking about and recommendation corner, spoiler alert, um, which I think is a great record. I don't know if that would have really made a difference in year end list necessarily. Um, next week, there's a new Nicki Minaj record, so I guess that's like the big ticket rap record that's going to drop in December. Pink Friday too. Again, I don't think that would be a factor on year end list. I don't, I don't think know. So. We'll see. <laughs> uh, there's also the Tate McRae record coming out, which is like the big pop record, I guess, of December. By the way, do you know Tate McRae? Do you know what kind of music she makes? Uh, I'm, vague, at all? I'm vaguely aware of their presence. I think they were on Saturday Night Live recently. and But like, I ultimately assumed that like Tate McRae, you talking about someone named Tate McRae, was like an extension of you going to the Bass Pro Shop to buy a Garth Brooks album. Uh, it, right. It, it sounds like a country it singer. It really does. Name. But she's like a... Gen Z Britney Spears, essentially. Based on like what I've seen. I have not dug deep into the Tate McRae catalog <laughs> not yet. yet. But I saw I, I saw a music video and it was very uh, you know, kind of Britney esque. She was born in two thousand three, by the way. <laughs> July two thousand three. She is as old as the Meadowlands or AFI sing the sorrow. <laughs> I was thinking that too. I was like <laughs> I was like, was I buying Room on Fire the day she was born? Uh, probably, yeah. you know, uh, just it's like that graphic at the end of uh, Saving Private Ryan, <laughs> where like Matt Damon ages into the old guy like instantaneously. That's how I feel. Yeah, she's slightly old. She's that. slightly older than Room on Fire. She was born on July first, so yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so if I didn't buy it the day it came out, I still could have bought it on her birthday. Yeah. Wait, no. Wait, she was born before it came out? Yeah, she was born in July. So um, if I, I'm just going to go to the tape right now like to see which albums came out around that time that we would know of. So basically, if you bought My Private Nation by Train that day, or uh, Stereophonics put out an album that day, or the self-titled... Mm. She's about as old as the uh, self-titled Rooney album. How about that? <laughs> Is that the first one? Uh, you Maybe... I don't yeah, know. probably. Yeah, that's the one with that's the one with the bear on the cover. That is absolutely right. The right. Rudy album that. Uh, right. <laughs> can we just talk? We're just gonna talk. Yeah, like the, we're just gonna talk. What about was their song? What was Rooney's song? Shaken. I'm trying to remember. I mean, that's not the Shaken. big one. That's right. Is that the big one? <laughs> I, just, I I have an image of them playing on a beach. Well, they, in they, a music they had a big episode of the OC where. They just talk like that. They the plot centered around, I guess, like a Rooney show, and it would be like, "Hey, you going to the Rooney show? Rooney's playing. Rooney's fucking awesome." It was like Poochie, except with Rooney. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm shaking. That that might not be the big one, but that's like the that's the fucking banger. Was that the cover of uh, the Eddie Money song, "Shaken"? No, but I think it's that- it's a worthy it's a worthy addition to the Shaken uh the Shaken catalog. That's a good. That's a good rock song name. Shaken. Yeah. Get a shaken in your title. Not, not not enough bands these days writing songs called Shaken or I'm Shaken or you know Shaken all over. It's a good. 
It's a good you rock. You shook me all night uh, long, you know. You yeah. shook me like yeah, exactly. through the mid-afternoon. You can't go wrong with shaking. It's a good rock and roll verb, <laughs> shake. It works. Um, so, okay, so you brought this up earlier. You saw The Last Waltz. I did. On Thanksgiving. And you'd never seen it before. Yeah, somehow I think, I, I maybe tricked myself into thinking I had seen it, or just like by nature of doing this podcast with you over the past three years, I've like micro-dosed it. <laughs> In that, like, it formulates in my brain to having seen the whole thing. But, you know, like, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, that's our annual Christmas tree buying and Christmas tree decorating day. So we need something in the background as we do that. Last year it was Get Back. And this year I'm like, you know what? I I, I need to, like, sit down and watch this. Um, and, you know, the good news is with watching it on freebie, it's three hours long about with commercials. So, you know, this uh, took up time. But, um uh, the band, the band's kind of a blind spot for me. Um, you know, I know up on Cripple Creek, obviously enough to not remember all of the lyrics. Uh, fucking incredible song, Shaken, great rock and roll verb, clavinet, great rock and roll instrument. Um, oh yeah. yeah, not enough of that these days. But um, you know, my revelations of like a, it's as good as you said it is, and I had a couple of you know major revelations from that. First of which is that. You know, the band, I think they self-consciously model themselves as like re- Civil War reenactors. and But they, they're they they're all wearing incredible fucking outfits. Like Yeah, they're wearing like suits and... Robbie Robertson's uh, like long-ass scarf. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at those guys. They're all like in their early to mid-30s. <laughs> they look like they're you 50, know? though. I know. It's, it, it's crazy. <laughs> like you think, like, like Mac DeMarco is older than now than Robbie Robertson is is in that movie. And it just goes to show, like, you know, men had something going on back then (laughs) that we, that men of our generation do not have. Like, they just have a gravitas. They're handsomer. They grow better beards. They dress better. Uh, I feel ashamed (laughs) of myself when I watch that movie. I'm like, why? Like, what happened (laughs) to men since 1976? We are way... Like, we're we way lost our way. We I mean, you see, yeah, we're awful. Yeah, now. you see, like Richard Manuel, and like, yeah. First off, like you see Muddy Waters playing. Uh, oh my yeah, god! Man. It's like this is the coolest anyone has ever been. Um, yeah, and he's like you know seventy or whatever. Yeah. You know, like he's older. I think he died six seven years after that movie was filmed. Yeah, he was. And he was sixty. Three, he, no, he was actually 35 years old. Nah, he was uh, 63 years old at that time, I guess. But, yeah, just, yeah. It's like young guys looked older and older guys looked younger yeah. <laughs> back then. And they all looked awesome. Except for Van, well, Ma- no, Van Morrison looked awesome. Um, my, the first thing my wife was like, wait, like, who is this guy singing when they're doing Caravan? And it's like, oh, that's, that's Van Morrison. And it's interesting because I think the popular idea of like what van morrison looked like is like the hat and the glasses the 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 version you see on the cover of his latest like five albums like five cd um you know concept album about like dr fauci like no one has like i had no idea what he actually looked like aside from like the astral weeks cover and the uh hat and glasses version but man i I, you you have you did not undersell the Van Morrison scenes. <laughs> oh man, Pur- yeah, like the purple bodysuit, and and it's another example. Like he's you know out of shape, 
and he's and he's balding, but he owns, owns it. it. Peak and he, male and performance, he, and he transcends it. It's it's beautiful. So even even guys that didn't look good back then looked better than the best looking guys now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're, we're now into men. We're we're now in the menswear cast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm amazed that you saw, that you hadn't seen it, but that you saw it this time. I was trying to think of like what's my equivalent of like a touchstone for you that I'm not familiar with. And I was just trying to think of something. And I realized it's like, I don't think I've listened to like an American football album in its entirety. So maybe that's something I need to do and report back. I mean, it's not as foundational as the, as the last waltz is to me, I don't think, but like, I know that's a big band for you. I have not really delved into them at all so maybe that's something i need to do yeah i mean uh, the influence of american football maybe that's like part of like what you know that's why you're saying like mac demarco or like you see kids on tiktok doing like midwest emo songs to like spongebob uh scenes you know maybe that's where maybe we lost our way in 1999 well we'll see i don't know we'll find out i gotta dig into it um we want to do a quick book cast here before we get into our mailbag I don't think have we ever done a book cast before? Uh, aside from like actual music books, no. Okay, so there are some musical elements to this book, but it is not mainly about music. But we need to talk about it, and I think our readers need to read this book. It's called Amongst the Bros, and it's by uh, is it Max Marshall? Yeah. I believe is the author, mm-hmm. and it's a book that you were tweeting about. And you you posted some screenshots, and I was like, I got to read this book. And I'm only halfway through, so you've read the whole yeah. thing. So I, there's some elements to it that I'm, I guess I don't want you to spoil for me because there's like a true crime element to this book. But basically, it's about Southern fraternities and just the pervasiveness of drugs <laughs> in this community, and like the uh, the crime, the organized crime, the drug dealing going on. Um, it's just a fascinating book. It, it feels like a book. I don't know if this book has been optioned yet for a movie. It it feels like this is going to be a movie or like a limited run TV show, right? I mean, it's so, it's so visual when you read it and it's such a great story. So many great characters. One of my favorite characters in the book is this guy named Biscuit (laughs) who is a friend of like the main character, this uh, drug dealer named Lil Mikey, who's <laughs> yeah. like this five nine guy, but he's like super suave and it's like a big time drug dealer. And Biscuit is this like idiot guy, <laughs> turtle from Entourage. That's why I total him like yeah, <laughs> he's like this idiot who like drives like an escalator or something, and he it's like loaded with like Xanax pills and like he pulls guns on people if they don't park his car immediately, like at the strip club where he's going to. But he's like an associate of like Scooter Braun and Justin Bieber. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm guessing that the music <laughs> business part of the book becomes more pre- prevalent because they talk about how Lil Mikey is friends with Waka Flock of Flame. <laughs> yeah. and, but like this Biscuit guy, he's like an assistant to Scooter Braun and Justin Bieber. There's also a story about him hanging out with Dave Grohl at one point. I forgot about that one. <laughs> yeah, there's like a there's like a throwaway line about him taking a photo with Dave Grohl. And I was like, man, Dave yeah, Grohl. The, the Dave- notoriously camera shy David Grohl. <laughs> right. But uh, I don't know. 
reading this book, one of my takeaways is just being reminded of like how big of an impact Xanax and other like downer pharmaceuticals have had on pop culture and music in the 2010s and probably now still, you know, like you can really hear that influence on music and just knowing that all these college kids are just taking tons of pills along with drinking, like getting blackout drunk or, you know, taking Xanax and drinking and then doing Coke to stay awake. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's amazing. Like you have more firsthand experience with this. You were actually in a frat, right? Like in the yeah. South. Yeah. I was in a Southern fraternity, a frat in a Southern uh, university, but it wasn't a good one. So I can't really relate. Uh, that's, that's always the thing. Like people are like, wait, you were in a fraternity, but I'm like, yeah, but it sucked. So like, don't, don't judge me like that. We were, we, we were, me and my friends, we were like watching clerks, the animated series and listening to ween. So, um, but nonetheless, like my experience at Virginia in like, 1998 to 2002 gave me a kind of vision like I know these people uh, I know this type of fraternity I know the, like the type of fail sons who go and look all due respect like I, college at Charleston they actively present themselves as like kind of a uh, playpen for rich fail sons and daughters um, they know that but also Charleston fucking rules that's like a great place to have a wasted four years but um you know, back in back in my, back in my day, um, you know the type of people that come across in this book, uh, which con- connects like two of my favorite fascinations, which is like Southern fraternity culture and organized crime. Uh, back <laughs> in back in those days, you would listen to like Robert Earl Keen or Lyle Lovett or Garth Brooks, and I do have to point out that I don't. I'm not sure if you would have picked up this book as quickly if like the excerpt I posted did it include widespread panic. Uh, that, that was Maybe. a big deal back in, back in the late nineties, early two thousand in the South. You definitely had some spread heads, even in like the most like uppity Southern fraternity. And, you know, uh, also like my, so <laughs> my favorite part of this book is that it shows like the evolution of like the one guy you would know from the Southern fraternity who listened to like three doors down and, you know, country music, but like they liked three, six mafia and literally no other rap. Because they just happen to be from like Memphis or something like that. And you see the evolution of like that guy to like an actual drug dealer. And I saw this firsthand when I lived at the, uh, I went, you know, I lived in Kentucky for a year in 2016. Uh, it was in Lexington. So it was the university. And every time I walked by like fraternity row there, they were just like blasting the ever living shit out of like schoolboy Q or Migos. I'm sure there was a lot of bro country like Tate McRae or people with similar names being played. I just didn't hear it. But if you haven't gotten to the part where they talk about fratshows.com, that's the most fascinating part because I would hear about guys who were, you know, Fetty Wap and Waka Flocka and, you know, like er, like mid-2010s quasi-one-hit wonder rappers who played along really well with like EDM who would just do these fraternities like SAE at Oklahoma. And I think back to like, you know, late nineties when I, you'd hear rumors about like, Hey, I heard beta got like two thirds of run DMC to play their uh, homecoming party for like 3000 bucks. It's like a weird big business. So this, there's just so many elements of this that lead to it having like a wolf of wall street, like an Adam McKay sort of thing, because you know, you have the organized crime, you got the drug dealing, you got the, Southern fraternities going on, but you also have like 
EDM slash hip hop uh, and that sort of bro culture as well. Um, just a, I, I read this book in like two days. Just fascinating, fascinating stuff. If you want to see like the decline of American culture in that time. Yeah, and just like you mentioned Wolf of Wall Street, like how these guys just watch they that, love movie. that movie. Yeah. Like unironically, like they take no satire from it at all. It's just straight up like a you know, like a like a manual for how to live your life. Just the worst lesson that you could take <laughs> from that movie. Uh, I should say it's called Among the Bros. I said amongst the bros. Maybe in it's England among it's called the... that. <laughs> That's right. A little too highfalutin for this book. It's Among the Bros. I'm halfway through it. I love it. Maybe we'll do another book cast once I finish it, but uh, definitely check it out. And like you said, there is like a weird kind of shadow story in the book. Like one of the tributaries of it is talking about this like frat circuit for rappers in the (laughs) 2010s, even though like a lot of these fraternities have either like no black members or have even like excluded black members in the past. It's like a very weird and I'm sure common dynamic yeah, K- going on there. Yeah, KA, like the Kalpa Alpha Order, the one they mentioned, like the one at Virginia, you would hear about them having like, uh, you know, like a cannon in their front yard pointed at like the one black fraternity on the street or like them oh dressing up as like Civil Warian actors, but not in that like respectful the band sort of way. Like there was some real dark, ugly shit going on there. Well, and the book also talks about how like, the KA fraternity was intertwined with the KKK for like the first 50 (laughs) years of the fraternity. It's like so fucked up, but a great book among the bros. It's called definitely check it out. All right, well, let's get to our mailbag. Finally here, we've got some uh, emails from our listeners. It's great to hear from you as always. Uh, Even the people who write us uh, angry emails, (laughs) there's a couple of those people, or at least people who write emails with an edge to them. We get a couple edge emails like people who are like vaguely insulting in some of their emails and it's like i just think do you expect this to be read on the air if you're if you're doing the insulting thing we're probably not going to read those unless they're funny so if you're going to make fun of us at least make it funny but these are some very nice emails some very interesting emails from our listeners thank you for writing in we're at indiecastmailbag at gmail.com hit us up always great to hear from you uh you want to read this first letter yeah, this uh, comes to us from Maddie from Kent, Ohio. Uh, nice. And, yeah, from a Gen Z listener. Nice. Gen Z listener, yes. So, hey, Stephen Ian. Uh, with the end of the year quickly approaching and the release of yearly compilations such as Spotify Rap being teased, which I believe are, is dropping the day that we uh, record, I was wondering if you guys had any strong feelings on the obsession with music statistics that has taken hold over the last few years. As someone who always looks forward to seeing their big year-end list of music, I feel sites such as Last.fm, Spotify Stats, and so forth have kind of taken some of the fun away. Maybe this is more prevalent in younger generations, but I found myself checking my monthly listening habits a lot more over the last couple of years and then knowing exactly what to expect when Spotify rap rolls around. It feels like every week there's a new trend going around advertising some website that will throw your monthly favorites into a diagram that was looked that made that was that looks like it was made into an intro and design class. Graphic design is my passion. Anyways, big pods, a big fan of the pod. You guys have gotten me through some tedious work shifts. Gen Z, Maddie. Oh, good question, Maddie. Um, curious to hear what you have to say about this, Ian, because I I definitely think that this is a generational thing, or at least it's not true for me in terms of my personal listening. Like I'm not tracking what I'm listening to every month. Um. 
because I'm listening on multiple platforms. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Apple Music. I'm on Apple Music because of all the music that I have, you know, that I've downloaded because of promos or that I've uploaded from CDs. Apple Music is the clearinghouse for that. So I find I'm actually on Apple Music as much or more than Spotify. And then, of course, I'm listening to physical sets and CDs and stuff. So it wouldn't even be accurate for me if I was just relying on the Spotify wrapped. And I'm, I guess I'm also just not that interested in it uh, personally. And I do think that on that token, there does seem to be a generational thing like where because this generation has grown up listening to music online and it's so easy to quantify what you're listening to that it does predispose you to being more interested in your own stats and and then you have super fans who are like gamifying essentially their listening like where they're trying to boost the streaming numbers for their favorite artists and that becomes a big campaign on social media um so yeah personally i'm not really interested in it i mean professionally i am you know we talk about this on the show all the time we're we're both fascinated by like artists who get a lot of press but they don't have many monthly listeners on mm. Spotify or the reverse where someone has a ton of listeners, like way more than you would expect, but they don't get written about. That's always an interesting thing to explore. Also, just as a barometer for what's popular right now, I mean, that completely overshadows the Billboard chart now. Like, I don't remember the last time I checked or cared about, you know, the Billboard albums chart, like who won the week <laughs> in sales like it's been years since i've cared about that because it's just not a relevant uh rubric anymore so professionally i care but personally i i don't really care what do you think ian do you personally care about your stats well i i guess i did when i first started using spotify like that was exciting in this in the way that anytime you get a like a look under the hood of music sales which have been like kind of notoriously dark arts um and, and of course like i'm a sports person like my twin obsessions are sports and music so like anyway anytime you can quantify this uh something that isn't really a competition it's just interesting if not like impacting how i listen to music um you know i i used to like really take the mtv video countdown seriously like i didn't know what the fuck uh was responsible for saying like what was the number one uh video of the week and what was number five but like I just love, and again, I, maybe this is like a guy-coded thing, but um, I just love statistics. And this ended almost immediately after I started using Apple Music as my primary uh, streaming service. Like Spotify wrapped, like I don't even know what, the, what it's going to bring up this year. Probably podcasts, but like I also uh, will play uh, block parties like eating glasses, like a tuning fork. Because, like, the first thing you hear is, like, an open E note. So sometimes I'll play that and, like, tune my guitar to it. But Apple Replay is their version of rap. It's just garbage. Apple Music is superior in so many ways, but the social component sucks. Like, this is the one time per year where I regret using it. And also, it's, like, extremely inaccurate. It says that I listened to, like, I think the Hot Mulligan album 60 times, which is absolutely not true. Uh, I love that album. But, um, yeah, I think that, like... I don't buy the idea that it's like ruining how music is consumed or made. Maybe a Gen Zer such as Maddie will tell us differently, but um, 
Yeah, I don't I don't buy that, but I think it's just a useful way to just give another perspective because let's face it, like at this time this point, like my entire worldview can oftentimes shrink to like the three or four simultaneous group DMs I have going on. So I just kind of need to get a bigger perspective of hey, wait a minute, I've never heard of this like generic indie rock band that's playing the thousand cap room in San Diego. Spotify allows me to see, oh wait, you know, Dell Water Gap or whatever has like twice as many listeners per month as say, I don't know, Julian Baker. And just I don't know if that's true, but it's just another way to get perspective. I don't know if it's an obsession anymore, but it's just fun. That is, I mean, that is again like the most interesting use of the stats when you can measure someone's media profile versus their actual listeners. I find that really interesting too and uh, just measuring the gap there because there's always a gap and uh just trying to figure out why that is it's uh that's probably my favorite use of statistics in listenership on these streaming platforms um let's get to our second letter i'll read this one this is from chris in fort worth texas he says long time listener first time caller i have noticed that the older i get the more i listen to new music and it reminds me of things that came before. That seems like a normal remembering some guys problem for a 40-year-old IndieCast listener. But sometimes I hear a new artist that sounds so much like another artist that it veers on distraction. I guess I am focusing on vocals. Take the new Hotline TNT album, for example. Great album. Yes, it is. But I can't help but think I am listening to the band A Great Big Pile of Leaves with Power Chords. We're going to... I want to hear what Ian has to say about that comparison. <laughs> My man, um, Chris, he said, remembering some guys, great big pile of leaves, 40-year-old IndyCats listener. Hell yeah. Uh, I, I, he That was like an Easter egg for you. Yeah. I don't I don't believe that that was like the first band that came to mind. I think Chris is like, I'm going to suck up to Ian <laughs> and drop this semi-obscure emo band in here. Uh, also, I am also enjoying the new album, Girl with Fish by Feeble Little Horse, also a really good record. But the lead singer sounds so much like Frankie Cosmos, I was looking it up on the internet to see if it was a side project of Greta Klein. Has that ever happened to you, that you enjoy a new record from a band, but in your mind you can't help but think you are listening to someone else? And that's from Chris in Fort Worth. So are you ever distracted by... A band sounding too much like another band. I think it's maybe detracting from your enjoyment. I think it depends on like whether this band is kind of funny in how much they sound like another band or it's like accidental and they're like the type of band who would hey it's like, hey, you sound a lot like a band X and be like, no, we've never listened to that. Like in the way that I think uh like Joy Division or Interpol would like talk down the Joy Division comparisons. But you know, right now it's uh, 7.42 in the morning. Uh, we're about 42 minutes into the podcast, and this is the first time I'm going to mention the band Ours. Uh, it usually <laughs> takes much shorter, but see, this is an example of, like, the funny version of Doppelgangers, because, like, I mean, this was, like, Jeff Buckley's old guitar tech, and their whole shit was sounding like a more kind of post-grunge, like, trashy Jeff Buckley. That I can enjoy, but then there are other times where it sounds, I don't know, like more accidental. Like I, I've been open about this on the podcast before. The first time I listened to Gang of Youths go farther in likeness, um, it evoked a lot of big, you know, two aughts indie acts like The National and Arcade Fire, Titus, Andronicus. And Keep Me in the Open sounded so much like The National, like even the drum beats that 
I found it distracting and it took me a while to kind of get over that. Um, but you know, other, and like hot Mulligan, a band I'm going to mention for the second time, like so much of it sounded like the wonder years, uh, that, uh, but not intentionally. So I think of a band as just acknowledging itself as, Hey, did you like this band? We're going to sound exactly like that. Like, Oh my, I cannot fucking believe I'm talking about the band kingdom come in 2023 please tell me like wow yeah like that their whole shit was like in the eight it was the 80s right they were like a hair metal version of like led zeppelin right they were kind of like the gorilla black to what uh what biggie was um they were the greta van fleet of the 80s yes oh fuck man i didn't yeah uh yeah greta van fleet i can enjoy like i i am not mad at how much they sound like led zeppelin or what have you just because they're so ridiculous yeah, it's so over the top with them that, at least for me, it becomes kind of endearing. You know, these young guys who love Led Zeppelin so much, they probably started listening to Led Zeppelin six months before they made <laughs> yeah. that record. They're just like in the Zeppelin phase, mm-hmm. which many of us went through at a certain time in our lives. You just think Led Zeppelin is the best band of all time. And I, I that was always my feeling with Greta Van Fleet, that they they were they made that record in the middle of like the biggest zeppelin phase of all time yeah most Um, people have that when they're like 12 or 13 but like they (laughs) did so when they had like the means to actually try making led zeppelin albums a dangerous combination yeah so you know i want to uh go back to something that uh, chris hinted at in his email which was talking about how this is something that i think happens as people get older and i i do think it's a common phenomenon where you get to a certain moment in your life and you become fixated on musical signposts from your past and everything gets compared to those signposts. And I do think that to a degree, these perceptions of like, oh, this band sounds too much like this band. It is a matter of your own perspective. And again, I think it's more common as you get older where, and I've had friends like this, like anytime you play them a new band, it's like, oh, this sounds like Nirvana or this sounds like Arcade Fire. And in their mind, they think, well, the music of my youth was original, and the music of now is just a bunch of ripoffs, which, of course, isn't true. I mean, like, every, <laughs> I mean, there were people in 1991 that heard Nirvana, and they were like, oh, this isn't as good as Husker Du, or yeah. The Replacements, you know, like, old heads would be saying that kind of thing. Um, so I think that's something to be aware of as you get older, and to maybe try to check that in your mind a little bit. Like, I'll, I'll say, like, for me as a critic... I really like hearing these sounds and influence change over time. And as I get older, you can see more of music and more of a perspective on that that I find really fascinating. Like, you know, this year, for instance, has been really big for a kind of music that 20 years ago would have been called alt-country. You know, where you, it's like rock bands playing pedal steel guitar, and combining like rock riffs and country influences. And you have a band like Wednesday, for instance, who would have been called alt country probably if they were out in 1997, but that term is outmoded. So we don't use it anymore. And it's interesting to take that band and see how they draw on those influences, but also combine it with like smashing pumpkins and Mm -hmm. other things where it's similar to that, but it changes. And that's how all music works. It, changes like in kind of minuscule but important ways over time and it's important i think to recognize that and not just focus on like something that might be similar to something else 
So I don't know. That would just be what I would say. If, if you're feeling like, oh, I'm getting older and a lot of things just sound like other things I've already heard, maybe it's not quite as similar as you might think. Yeah, I, 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 I sometimes like lose sleep at night thinking if I were like, I don't know, 25 or 30 years old in 2000 rather than 20, if I would hear Kid A and think, this is just like a square pusher. and Because uh, <laughs> those people existed for real. Of course, of yeah. course. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's always like the older guy. You know, the guy who's, you know, like if you're 20, the guy who's like 29 or yeah. 30 who's just going to take a shit on any new thing. Or like when the strokes come out. Like, oh, this is just like run-of-the-mill rock music. This is, like, why do you like this, this is the knack for 2000. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, come on. This is garbage. You know, you know, there's always that person. Yeah. And you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that. Because no one likes that guy. That, yeah. guy's, that guy sucks. Yeah. So I don't mean, be that guy. Yeah, maybe you are that. Like, maybe you have these thoughts. But, like, just to be able to, like, check it and have some degree of, like, you know, self-awareness. And also not to talk like a 1920s uh, prospector, <laughs> you know, with that accent. Or maybe do talk with that accent. If you're going to be that asshole, like, really lean into it. Be the like Greta Van Fleet. Don't be the, uh, uh, you know, like the Interpol, you know. Uh, you want to read our next letter? Yes. So this is Scott from Northern Virginia. And Scott, you got to let me know. Are we talking about like Stan? Are we are we talking about like, um, are we talking about Fairfax? Are we talking about like, I mean, there's so many unmemorable Northern Virginia suburbs. I say that as someone who lived in Virginia. Shout out to uh, that part of the country. But anyway, um, they redeemed themselves with the bonus question. Uh, a common selling point for album reissues or remasters is the addition of previously unreleased demo versions of the original tracks. While getting more music from a beloved album can be exciting, I repeatedly find demos to be an essential because of poor mixing or fi- missing elements from a final song. As such, rarely listen to a demo and never more than once. What are your thoughts on bands releasing demos? Do you value them as an insight into the si- band's songwriting process? Or like me, consider them unnecessarily filler. Is there a notable demo version of a song you listen to on a regular basis? Or rate higher than the official release? Bonus question, Pretty Girls Make Graves. Yay or nay? Scott wow. from Nova. Um, I'm going to punt on that one. I haven't listened to that band a ton. I guess I like what I've heard. I guess I'll say yay. It's not a strong yay. I assume you're a yay. Yeah, massive yay. Massive yay. I mean, they were a band that... Uh, and if you haven't heard Pretty Girls Make Graves, they were uh, kind of a short-lived band, late 90s, early 2000s. They were on Lookout Records for a bit, and I think they signed to Matador um, for an album or two and then broke up. But yeah, this is a band we like kind of considered for the when we made the uh, big Vulture Best Emo Songs of All Time list. We wondered if they were possibly like grandfathered in. I think it was just also, well, hey, man, we need, like, some more uh, female-fronted acts besides Sergeant Raina Maria. Um, we ultimately decided no. I think if they came out, like, today, they would be considered emo, but, like, probably not in 2003. They were in that, like, dismemberment plan with Savvy Fave kind of art punk scene. Yeah. But, like, absolute, like, Pretty Girls Make Raves, absolutely fucking yes. So a big yay from Ian. Yeah. I'll do like a medium yay from me. Um, as far as the demo question is concerned, I think that... Most of the time, demos don't add a ton to a reissue or a box set. But when they are valuable, they can make the box set or album like so much better. And the example that I would bring up immediately for that is the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot box set that came out last year, which... 
kind of think it's probably like a top five or six box set of all time for me. I think it's an amazing box set and it has a lot to do with just all the demos there. And what sets it apart is that Wilco, of course, they were doing radically different things in their demos. So you could have multiple versions of camera that really sound like, you know, five or six different songs. So when you have a band like that, that's really adventurous with their arrangements that makes the demos more interesting. A lot of bands with their demos, it just sounds like a like a shittier version of like the official release song. And that tends to be a little bit boring. So definitely in the case of Wilco, I love the demos. Another example I'd give from this year is the Who's Next box set, which is like an enormous, it's like 10 discs box set. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of those are demos. And a lot of them are just like Pete Townsend by himself, playing all the instruments and doing all the vocals. <laughs> and in a way, that version of Who's Next is more modern sounding than like the actual record. Like the actual record, which I love, obviously, but it's like this stadium rock, ultimate 1970s type album. Whereas the demos, it kind of sounds like Pete Townsend is like car seat headrest or, <laughs> uh, you know, like a band camp troubadour making a rock record in his bedroom. Um, and then, you know, I know like with the Who, a lot of people don't like Roger Daltrey's voice. You know, he has a very macho, you know, again, 70s rock singer type voice. Whereas Pete Townsend, again, it's a softer, kind of more modern singer-songwriter type voice. So that's another example, I think, where demos take the album in a different direction that makes it interesting. Uh, so, again, I think most of the time I would agree with... Uh, um, our letter writer here, uh, Scott from Northern Virginia. But again, the exceptions are really exceptional. And I'm glad those demos were released. Yeah, I think that uh, for me, I, I'm, I don't really like listening to demos. I feel like it's intrusive in a way. Like sometimes like bands are like, hey, we're working on the next record. You want to hear some demos? Like not as like, hey, we're gonna slide you this. Maybe you'll like our album more. But like, I I don't even like sharing my own work in progress. So, therefore, like it, it's you know it's it's understandable. That I wouldn't want to listen to a band's demos, and I can't think of too many times where I've heard a demo and think, oh, that this is the superior version. You know, I I know some people think that way. Um, and the only times I really listen to demos, even if they are on a special box set, is like when I'm actually reviewing it. I, I did that, for example, like. I think the like my version of like you listening to the Who's Next ten CD box says when I did the reissue of uh, the Aeroplane Flies High, the Smashing Pumpkins like five five CD uh, box set that was expanded to like a hundred more songs, and you got to hear like the Smashing Pumpkins do like live versions of uh, those songs and like the special winner song. If you're a Smashing Pumpkins head, you know that's like super meaningful because like James does like a rap in the middle. Uh, those are cool, <laughs> but um, and also it just reminds you of like a time where Smashing Pumpkins might have like actually liked to hang out with each other. Uh, but otherwise, I am not not really a demo person. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Yeah, if I'm being honest, like I think I spent most of this past week trying to revisit albums I like from you know the ancient times of February and March <laughs> uh, to see about my year-end list. But one that I've kind of come across that I've been trying to get more into is from an artist called 
I guess it's called Quanic. It's Q-U-A and then three N's, I-C. The album is called Step Dream. They're one of the artists on Dead Air, which is on the same label that gave us Jane Remover and Quadeca, an album that I think I talked about in late 2020. And it's really interesting to see how a lot of these artists that might have been called like hyper pop or digicore a few years back as their stuff evolved they get way more into like late 90s alt rock uh jane removers album which uh, we talked about a few weeks ago um you know kind of sounds like more like hum or post rock quantic is more like i well the first riff uh sounds exactly like page of the lions options which is great but this is kind of more post okay computer I'm going to bring up ours again in a very loving way, but also maybe the first Muse album, like the one where they were Radiohead ripoffs. It gets into that kind of like electronic leaning, anthemic alt rock uh, from the late 90s. And it's just so fascinating to hear artists who were like, you know, born in 2003, you know, like as old as Hail to the Thief uh, doing that. So. Um, this is an album that I, I've just like kind of enjoyed on a surface level, but I think it's more indicative of like larger trends to see how uh, younger artists who you know were once like kind of cutting edge, like oh this is the future of music, kind of gravitate towards uh, you know kind of stuff that people of our age likes in the same way that like a lot of emo bands end up becoming like Wilco fans. Uh, but this is just kind of a variation of it. So the album Quantic Step Dream. So I want to talk about a record I referenced earlier in the episode, and that is the latest from Peter Gabriel. And I don't know how to pronounce this album title. I'll just say it's I slash O. That's how it's typed. Bonnie type shit, yeah. I don't know if there's some crazy pronunciation going on with that. But this is the first Peter Gabriel record in 21 years. And apparently there are elements of this album that go back to 1995. So Peter Gabriel's (laughs) been working on this record Longer than, uh, you know, like many Gen Zers have been alive, uh, which I think alone should make this album worth your time. You could spend an hour listening to this Peter Gabriel record that he spent 27 years working on. Um, but this is a record that uh, he's actually been releasing throughout the year. Uh, he started putting out singles from this record in January. So it's been floating around songs from this record uh, throughout 2023 it's now finally being released as an album i actually ordered the two cd plus one blu-ray version (laughs) of this record uh and there's a bright side mix a dark side mix and an inside mix so you get like three versions of the album with like three different mixes pretty crazy um i think i mentioned this on the pod i saw peter gabriel uh Uh, live earlier this year and he basically did this whole album and it was a beautiful show beautiful music extremely ornate as you'd expect his voice sounds incredible it actually made me think listening to it that i can hear his influence on a lot of modern art pop and art rock in a way i don't know if he gets credit for that i feel like peter gabriel's like a little under discussed a little underappreciated but you know, I was listening a lot to the El Rain record this week, I Killed Your Dog, which is an album that's really risen up in esteem for me in the past couple months. And listening to that record, I was like, oh, I bet she likes Peter Gabriel. There's some definite Peter Gabriel vibes on this record. 
And uh, I don't know. I I I would love to see people rediscover him. I, he's basically like the male Kate Bush. You know, like that's how that would be my elevator pitch for younger audiences who aren't sure if they want to check him out. I mean, he did a duet with Kate Bush, a very great song called Don't Give Up. But I think there's like a similarity in that they're both like arty, theatrical, pop music makers who have really catchy songs. But there's always this sort of mysterious, enigmatic element going on with what they're doing. Um Beyond like what you might know from Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer is yeah. obviously his most famous song, but there that's not really reflective of his whole catalog, which again is I think much artier and more prog rock. But anyway, I love this record. I love that it exists. I, I think it's such a crazy amount of work that he put into it. And uh, I'm looking forward to luxuriating in it, all three versions of it this weekend. Yeah, would you say like in your eyes is like his version of uh, running up that hill being in Stranger Things? Like that was like the '80s version of that. Yeah, that's a good. That's another good parallel there. Yeah, but, for sure. But yeah, I think that Peter Gate. First off, I, I'm like disappointed that if it has a Blu-ray, it doesn't have an enhanced CD version where like there's like a there's like a video game that you can play. That seems like a very uh, if something's been in the works since 1995, but. Yeah, there might Peter... be on one of these CDs because there's <laughs> there's two CDs and a Blu-ray, so maybe one of the CDs are enhanced. I'll I'll, I'll let you know. I'll report back. But yeah, I think he is kind of an undervalued uh, guy. You know, whether or not it's like an influence, I think that there's enough um, similarities to like what he's doing in artists. Like, like basically, if like an artist says, "Oh, Kate Bush," like it's not a far leap to be into what Peter Gabriel does. So I don't know, maybe in 2024, he's uh, it's his year. I think he's, you know, if people aren't directly influenced by him, they're influenced by Bonnie Bear, who is definitely influenced yeah. by Peter Gabriel. So maybe some of that gets laundered through Bonnie Bear and other people that have been listening to him. But anyway, looking forward to listening to that this weekend. That about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.